exploring the history of cannabis culture, one artifact and interview at a time. This is Canthropology, presented by the World of Cannabis Museum Project, with your host, World of Cannabis Executive Director, Bobby Black. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Canthropology, the podcast that explores the history of cannabis culture, one artifact and interview at a time. As always, I am your host, Bobby Black. In this episode, we'll be delving deep into the musky, gooey, spicy, savory history of hashish, or as I've been humorously referring to it, hashistory. <laughs> now, we know that humanity has been using cannabis for thousands of years, but what about hash in particular? What exactly is hashish? How do we define it? When and where was it first discovered or invented? How was it popularized and spread across the world? How has it evolved over the centuries, and what role has it played in cannabis culture? To help us sort through the myths and mysteries and separate the fact from fiction so we can formulate a clear and chronological picture of Hash's history, I'm proud to have as my guest today one of the world's foremost authorities on the topic. Originally from Nice, France, this artisan hash maker and connoisseur traveled the globe for decades in search of the world's best hash before finally settling down in the Bay Area. An internationally renowned expert and educator, he teaches old-school hash-making techniques to the next generation with his Lost Art of the Hashishin workshop series, and his signature brand of high-end traditional hash can be found in fine dispensaries all across California. Please join me in welcoming to the show Master Hashishin himself, Frenchie Cannoli. Frenchie, thanks for joining us today. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me, man. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. And so, you know, I've always loved hashish uh, ever since I was first turned on to it. Um, and with all the concentrates and edibles and everything going on here in the U.S., I feel like traditional hashish is uh, is a little underappreciated. So I want to get into it, talk about it, where it came from, what it's about, and, uh, and, and all that good stuff. But before we do that... Let's start out. I want to learn a little more about you, let our listeners hear. Uh, give us a little background about yourself. Who are you, how you first got involved with cannabis, and how you came to be considered uh, such a renowned expert on hashish? Hey, I wonder about the last one, but... <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, uh, it started when I was really young. I, uh, I was reading a lot of books, uh, Adventure, uh, Burton, and... Uh, the thousand and one night uh, going to the Mecca, the discovery of the Nil. Uh, one of my uh, big heroes was Henri Montfred, a Frenchman who in the early 1900 went to the Red Sea, built a boat with uh, local people and for 25 years smuggled uh, ash, weapon and uh, pearls in, uh, in the Red Sea. Uh, so it's like at, I don't know, I must have been 10, 11 years old. I was reading the adventure of uh, that guy, Henri de Montfred, smuggling ashish from Egypt to, to uh, Egypt, from Greece to Egypt. And I didn't know what was ash, but it's like all the, the books, the culture on India and Persia, all the books I was reading, there was always some 
story with Ashish. Marco Polo was one of my big heroes, and the story with Ashishin is had always been part of uh, of the culture I uh, I was dreaming of when I was a kid. <clears throat> and then came teenagehood. You forget about your kid's dream, and then I was facing life. Basically, I was 17 years old, and I was facing adult life, and I. I just want, didn't want any part of it. You know what I mean? I really didn't want any part of it. I was flipping out. But I, I didn't know what to do anymore. I had forgotten about this traveling dream. And then my best friend, after six months of struggling, uh, if he was going to make me smoke my first one or not, because he was afraid that he could break our friendship, finally find the courage to... Uh, to share a smoke with me, hallelujah. <laughs> and, uh, and that was it. I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I just wanted to travel. I definitely didn't want to be part of it. And that's what I did. I traveled for 18 years solid. And most of the time I spent was in producing country, at least three, four months a year to, uh, to make my stash for the, to smoke during the year. And uh, that's it's usually done in a mountain in remote places. And then I would go and smoke it for the rest of the year on the beach. Like I took 18 years, or 18 years of retirement up front, just in case. <laughs> uh, that's, that's amazing. So how did you get by? How did you survive? Uh, what did you do for money? You sold, sold hash that you made? Uh, some of it, because hash is like money. But uh, a lot of uh, a lot of stuff like I'm always been into uh, tribal art and antiques and uh, jewelry and uh, like uh, old uh, weaving material, weaved material and stuff. So I was going really into remote places because that's what I like to get lost, really. And uh, it's easy to uh, to exchange uh, a, a new piece of gold that you buy at uh, at Dubai. Uh, pretty cheap, the weight of the gold for uh, some the, the same weight in gold, but the, uh, an antique that has like a few hundred years uh, on it. And just one piece like this, I uh, that's it. I mean, I was living with peanuts. I left France the first time to go to India. I had 450 bucks in my pocket with no airplane ticket. Wow. The first time I went to Mexico, I had 700 bucks in my pocket. That was all. It's like uh, when you have nothing but traveling, all my money, everything was just to travel. And then you don't even need to go back home. It's like uh, when I was going to Mexico, coming back to India and going through, uh, through Japan, well, I had uh, antique from, uh, from Mexico, Amax. There is always stuff that uh, next door they don't have. You know what I mean? And... Uh, You, you live with you live like a king for very 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 little uh, at least in that time yeah it's maybe not exactly the same now and that was my life for 18 years solid until I became a dad quite basically wow 
And so, so you, so you visited, you visited most of the, I mean, probably all of the great hash making centers, right? Morocco, Nepal, uh, Afghanistan. No, I mean, no, Afghanistan, the, the war, at, it was ah, in 1980 yeah. that I went to, uh, to Asia. Yeah. And uh, the, the war had started uh, for a few months already. It was too dangerous. I, uh, yeah. I was trained by, uh, by Afghan uh, Ashishir. In, uh, in India, refugees, but I, I never had the chance to, uh, to go to Afghanistan and Lebanon are the two places I really, really, really want to go. So, yeah, we'll get, we're going to talk all about uh, Afghanistan and that history uh, coming up. But before we get into all the history and everything, uh, I think it's important just for us to quickly define some of the terms so it's clear to our listeners what we're talking about. So mm-hmm. I mean, these days, the term hash has become an umbrella term for pretty much any type of cannabis concentrate. But I know that you have pushed back against that usage and you, you have a much narrower definition of what should be considered Hash. So tell us what your definition of, of hashish is and why. Hashish is dried sieved, wall resin gland that have been dry sieved and pressed with a source of it in a mass of resin. That mass of resin holds in its body the matrix that created the terpene and the cannabinoid and the resin within the gland. It's very much like a fruit. And if you extract the juice from the apple, you, uh, you have an aspect of the apple, but you leave behind a huge part of what the apple is. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? When you take the resin from the resin gland, it's pretty much the same. You leave behind everything that created the... the, the the terpene, uh, the resin, and the cannabinoid. The same way that when you extract the juice from a fruit, you leave behind everything that created the juice and the sugar that you enjoy so much. And you wouldn't, you wouldn't compare juice to the whole fruit. You know what I mean? Ashish is very much like, the, like, like wine. To an example that is easy for everybody to understand. To be able to create wine, there is a, a, a chemical reaction happening. That chemical reaction happens because the whole fruit is crushed together. And then there is that fermentation that creates wine. And that is unique in itself. Now, if you extract the juice from the grape, you will not be able to make uh, wine but you will be able to make many different types of distilled alcohol, up to 90.9% pure, like ethanol. Every one of those alcohol can be great, but you wouldn't compare them between each other and with wine. Wine is, right. so- is, part, is, is an alcoholic beverage, like every extract is a concentrate, but it's not an alcohol. Right, so so the so hashish in your so it's the it's the inclusion of some of the plant material and it's also the pressure and the heat. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Those those three I mean, factors. If you consider the gland as a plant material, yeah, I guess yeah. 
you're talking about the trichomes, right? That's the glands. Yeah, the trichome glands. So what? So what would be the difference uh, for the layperson between the resin and the trichome and the essential oil? Uh, like, is do the trichomes contain the essential oils? Or... The, the trichome, uh, the all the within its body, the essential oils and terpene and phenol and resin, it created it. It hold it in its body. This is toxic to the plant. So the plant has the ability to contain that toxicity that is created to deal with the outside world and protect the plant from the outside world. You know what I mean? Yes. Yes. So it's like I, I take the whole gland and it's crushed together. That means that all the membranes, the lipid, everything that is part of that matrix that creates the magic, it's part of the ashish. It's in its mass. It's been transformed. It transforms through age. And now I, can, I have scientific study on it. Uh, it's pretty amazing, the type of transformation going through, uh, through aging. You don't have this in, a, in an extract. No, no, You don't have this not. when you take the resin only. <clears throat> it doesn't, it's just different. It's like you shouldn't compare and you shouldn't think that one is better than the other because you can't compare goodness. It's just different and we should appreciate diversity. Sure. That's what we don't have. Sure. So speaking of diversity, I'm going to quickly run down. There's the different types. So there's charas, which is probably, you would say, the first type of hash that was ever made, right? Because it's basically the the it's made by rubbing the plant between your hands or fingers and whatever comes off is kind of what becomes the hash, right? Mm-hmm. And that so where where did where did that begin? Uh, what region? What was the origin of that in your in your mind? And uh, so, and, and that's made from live plants or dried plants? Uh, that's made from live plants. Right. Okay. That's and it's in, today it's only practiced in at the feet of the Himalaya, from Bhutan to uh, to northern uh, India, like uh, uh, Kashmir, uh, Himachal Pradesh. Uh, historically speaking, for the longest time, I thought that the, the cradle of uh, an origin of Ashish would be somewhere in the Pamir Mountain, uh, Afghani Afghanistan, Karim Basin, uh, and Central Asia. And I spent the whole, uh, the whole quarantine and uh, COVID like this past year writing a book on history. And I started to be able to find the origin of Ashish. I needed to find the origin of cannabis. And so cannabis was born most certainly 28 million years ago in the high plateau of Tibet. Wow. It's, and it's that the, the birthplace of cannabis is right next to the, the biggest corridor of, uh, of migration of animal that has been going on for 10 of million of years from uh, uh, Africa toward uh, the, uh, the Americas and, uh, and vice versa. It is proven also that cannabis was in Europe 6 million years ago. That's, that's amazing. <laughs> and that, that whole movement of the, of the cannabis toward Europe and, um, and the Mediterranean Sea is mostly defined by its uh, by a genetic evolution of the humulus that like better the tropical place 
into cannabis that thrive into high plateau dry desert place. And with the move of the herbivore, the plant was moved through the whole Central Asia towards uh, the shore of the Mediterranean Sea and Europe into this type of, uh, of condition. Semi, it wasn't so aridic in that time, but like uh, not uh, mostly steppe and uh, plain, uh, high plateau and mountain type of, uh, of plants. When, it, when the cannabis plant reached the Mediterranean Sea and it reached the, a place that is considered as the richest soil on earth, the fertile crescent. Yeah. That goes basically from Iran to Egypt. That means that Homo erectus, the first genus that moved from Africa, and the longest living genus ever, 1.5 million years of evolution, and he, he inhabited uh, the Eurasian continent from Spain to Philippines and Indonesia. Okay? Those people, when they stepped into Egypt and the Levantine Corridor, they stepped in the richest land on Earth where the cannabis plant had been growing for 4 million years, naturally. Wow. Okay. Uh, so did they bring people, it? Did they bring it there, or it just got there on its own? No, it 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 was there on its own. Okay. Okay. It came by itself, brought by herbivore, by animals. The, yeah. The, the best migratory tool for a seed plant it's herbivores outside human humanity. Huh? Yeah. So the chance that the first meeting of a genus Homo with a cannabis plant, there is a good chance that it happened somewhere in Lebanon, Egypt, Israel, uh, uh, Iran, Iraq, like those, where the richest place on earth and the plant has been there uh, since for four million years. Imagine, four million years of natural evolution in the richest soil on earth. So if the plant has been growing for four million years in the richest soil on earth before the apparition of humanity, the, the chance for the, the Homo erectus to, uh, to pick up the plant, even if it's only for the seeds and the nutritional part at the beginning, uh, is super high. And if you, want to, if you want the seeds from the plant, you need to touch the flower. If you touch the flower, you get sticky finger. Yeah. And that aromatic uh, resin on the finger of that ancestor was certainly plenty enough for him to, uh, to have a test of it because every plant is a source of survival yeah. and has to be tested at every level and the knowledge of that plant has to be transmitted to the tribe and future generation. So this was like a, a way of life. It's natural for them to really test everything that seems edible or uh, uh, medicinal or we could bring any uh, any power of survival to the to the tribe yeah so that's there so is a good chance that they, they actually got high before they even started to eat the seeds of the of the plant yeah and so obviously charas uh, the hand hash 
is going to be the first one that that people uh, discover, and then after that, they they're going to move on to the the other types of hash. I'm um, uh, dry that's sift. That's more complicated. Yeah, yeah, that comes later. To go from sticky finger to sticky hand, there is not such a straight of imagination. <laughs> okay, but then to go from sticky hand to dry sieving, it's something else. There is the fact that you don't collect seeds without drying the plant. Okay, good. Already, it's a, it's it's a relation because when you you break the flower to get the seeds over a, a woven tool, you gonna have sticky finger. You know what I yeah. mean. And at the same times, you would see you would see that cloud of dust. Falling down, that uh, dust being Keef or you know Keef, that, the, that's, the that's powder. Being the tricon gland yeah. uh, falling down. I mean, they they fall at maturity. They fall as long as as soon as you touch uh, a dry uh, bundle. So they it, it's to be for the our ancestor to be able to connect that that sticky uh, that sticky resin that you have on uh, on their uh, finger. When they crush the flower, or when it's live, it's connected to that powdery cloud that is falling down. Sure. I mean, it's not a super huge stretch of uh, of imagination, but hey, uh, that's something serious, though. Yeah. And yeah. but to do that, you need to reach a certain point where to produce it, you need to have a, almost a, a semi-sedentary life because you need to produce in. Uh, in higher quantity to uh, to be able to uh, to do that, yeah. and you need the tool, you need the sieve. Sure. You need to be able to start separating the the contaminant and uh, and the gland, and then there is how do you figure out that if you use a source of heat to do a decarboxylation, you actually uh, activate the the cannabinoid. You get rid of the Carboxyl acid and uh, mm -hmm. and you create THC instead of uh, THCA. Yeah. Then it start to be wow. <laughs> sure. So now I want to get into the the history a little more now. Um. So obviously humans, as you met, as you point out, have been using cannabis for thousands, if not millions, of years. But mm -hmm. to get to the first recorded use or references of hashish, so um. So I, it's my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, that that uh, in India and uh, Nepal uh, and possibly Iran, in about a thousand BC, they were already drinking a, a drink called bong, which is made with hashish. Is that correct? It was made with uh, bong. Is actually ganja. It's flour. And so that's it was not hash. Done in India, five thousand years ago. And in uh, in northern Iran, Afghanistan, with the Persian Empire and Zarathustra, where on one side it was the Oma, and on the other side was the Soma. Okay, so hashish itself, as as a record, recorded references of it, dates back uh, to the. Uh, Ancient Persia, right to the days, the earliest days of Islam, sometime between the writing of the Quran in like 632 and like mm -hmm. 900 AD, right? Uh, or, or yeah, yeah, and, and that's the, when we find yeah. the first reports on the use and properties of hash. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In uh, in uh, and it's uh, 
all the medicinal recipe. One is a book of poison, and uh, then it's uh, it's more literature. And uh, right, the book of poison was the Iraqi alchemist uh, Ibn Washia, right? Yeah. Wasia. Yeah, yeah, I don't know yeah, how to yeah. pronounce it, but yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah that yeah. was in the tenth century. Um, and he claimed in the book that the odor of it was lethal, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which yeah. is, uh, it which was is lethal pretty funny. When mixed, you no, know, he said it was lethal when mixed with other plants. Oh, okay. okay. Or something like that, yeah. And there were another really great uh, physicist of the time that is supposed to, be, to have been pro-cannabis, but it's, uh, it's never been proven that he actually used cannabis. It's pretty sure. But the guy wrote thousands and thousands of papers, and very little has been translated. And to this day yet, there is no real solid evidence that he was actually using it, so even if there is a, a lot of uh, clues that uh, would say that he, he did. Yeah. Um, and then also, the le- there's a legend that has it that hashish was quote-unquote discovered by the founder of the Sufis, uh, Haydar. Um, and so I know the Sufis, uh, which was a, um, a mystical sect of Islam who sought com- – they were monks who sought communion with God through deep introspection. Um, and they believed that hashish stimulated consciousness and gave them a path to enlightenment. The Sufis were, were well-known uh, cannabis users uh, and hashish users, I should say. How much truth is there to that according to what you've uh, learned? Uh, that, uh, that specific uh, personage is uh, it's all about cannabis, actually, with him. It's not really Ashish per se, the name, you know what I mean? And he came a lot, uh, millennium after Zarathustra. And Zarathustra was like the world religion of Zarathustra was very strong in uh, Northern Iran and uh, and Afghanistan. That was uh, the center of the religion. So it's uh, the guy most certainly was into cannabis. Uh, what's interesting that he he was keeping it a secret, which makes sense that there is so little about hashish uh, and the cannabis plant. It's like it was such a, an amazing experience and so special that people didn't really want to uh, share it. I guess. Because it was like a mystery religion, like the ancient mystery yes. religions. You had to be initiated, yeah. uh, you know, and be a believer to be turned on to it, right? Kind, kind of, yeah. Yeah. And uh, so, I mean, it's so poorly for the for the person in a, in a certain way, but it's uh, it's so much older than that. It's there is there is actually solid evidence of the use of ashish as incense, like. Uh, Frankincense and myrrh, those, mm-hmm. those uh, aromatic uh, resins that uh, had an amazing value. You could buy kingdom with uh, with it. And for a long time, it's been believed that ashish was used uh, as a form of uh, incense in uh, in prehistoric time and uh, ancient time. But we had never had any any proof of it, and lately, like last year or something like that, uh, they finally um, lab tested the remains that they found on two altars in a Judaic temple, three thousand years old in Israel, 
and they found out on one uh, uh, on one of them they were burning uh, frankincense. You had all the um, the compound uh, of frankincense left in uh, in the in the remain, and on the other uh, altar it was uh, it was cannabinoids. Yeah, and, and so and and uh, cow dung as a <laughs> burning. Uh, tool. So it's like this is the first solid evidence of the use of cannabis resin as an incense 3000 years ago. Yeah. So that's super interesting because at the same in the same time frame in what is was to become the center of hashish, the Tarim Basin, uh, there is three or four solid evidence of the use of cannabis as a psychoactive plant, but it's all flowers. There is a stash of a, of a shaman. There is another shaman with a certain flower, full plant on his, uh, on his chest. Uh, there is another one. It's residue on the, some pot and, one, it's the, literally the, the brassero they were using to burn flour with a stone, and they have residue of cannabinoid inside. So in the same time frame, on, uh, on one side, uh, on the Mediterranean side, there is the use of, uh, of ashish, solid evidence, and on the other side where it's, uh, culturally speaking, uh, a hotbed for ashish, it was still in that time uh, flower evidence that uh, that we uh, we find. So yeah. maybe we this like that's another <clears throat> plus showing that yes, the center of everything that is cannabis and uh, and humanity may well have been the the fertile crescent. Yeah, and and also uh, I'm glad you pointed out the incense because. Uh, we should mention that you know at this time no one was really smoking weed or hashish, right? They were ingesting it, they were eating the hash, or they were burning it as incense. They, 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 they were burning it as incense. They were they were hotboxing. <laughs> yeah. Literally, yes, that, yes. That, that, that those two altars are into a very small stone room in the center of a pyramid, like uh, some serious, serious, serious hotboxing. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh -huh. um, all right. So uh, I also read online that supposedly the first time the word hashish was used on record was in a pamphlet published in Cairo in 1123, uh, accusing uh, the Nazari Muslims of being hashish eaters. I don't know if you know about that at all, about the first time the word was used. Uh, I wasn't, uh, I didn't know the detail. But yes, it's uh, 11, uh, 10th, 11th century where uh, the Sufi, the dervish dancer, every, uh, everybody that wasn't Muslim or Muslim uh, of a lower caste uh, to have a, for a better world were Ashishia, eater of Ashish. And they were even mentioned, there's a story in the uh, 1001 Arabian Nights tales uh, that is called the tale of the hashish eater, and, and, and that mm -hmm. made it very famous as well. Yeah, there is two, uh, two tales of uh, hashish eaters that, is pretty, uh, that are pretty funny. But it's uh, the whole uh, hashishin, the, the sect of the assassin and, and stuff like that, 
it's all based about this. It's like it was a tribe of Muslim that wasn't appreciated by the rest of the Islamic empire, but they were really good and devious. And uh, the old man of the mountain is, uh, is a, the one that is well known, but is just one of the last of the of the chef of the of the of the main sect it was a a sect made their territory their kingdom was made of fortress in a mountain of northern iraq and uh, and iran right uh, and they they were around them it was only uh, enemies and the only way for them to survive was to scare them so that they wouldn't come and fight them with an army. And they were the first terrorists. It was not known at that time to uh, to kill the king of other kingdom and stuff like that. But they made it a business. They made it a tool that they didn't need to kill you to make you stop. They just needed to show time to time that they could do it. And it was enough to scare everybody. Hmm. And because they were so low in the, in, uh, in the mind of, uh, of the crusader and, uh, and the whole Islamic empire, it's like to, uh, to be afraid of such a low class enemies was not showing, wouldn't show well in the history book. And the word Ashishia, it's just to uh, to bring them to a level where to show that they were the scum of the world. But that scum of the world uh, scares the shit out of them. And uh, <laughs> there, there is no proof behind the fact that uh, they were using any type of psychoactive drugs for those people to dedicate their life for their tribe. You know what I mean? It's like people not afraid to be killed, to be able to do something to protect their tribe. It's all day long in a history book. They just do it, did it in a way that they scared the biggest empire in the world. They were a handful of citadel, of, of fortress in the mountains. They were nobody. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, uh, it's pretty interesting that they became that, that sect of assassin when there is there is nothing behind. It's just being Marco Polo uh, and other European uh, using it to uh, to define uh, something that they were afraid of. Yeah, I mean, and I'm glad you. I mean, that was going to be my next question was to talk about the Hashishin because um, this is a story that I've heard for a very long time, and you know, Hassan Isaba was the name of the guy, the old man of the mm-hmm. mountain. And this was around like 1090s common era, I think. So this story, as you mentioned, was recounted by explorer Marco Polo after his adventures in the East. But the story basically said that there was this powerful Persian mystic uh, guy living in the mountains in the fortress, Hassani Sabah, and that he had trained this army of mercenary disciples who ba- basically it was a hashish cult was the story and that it was he used hashish rituals to indoctrinate them into this cult and then send them out to assassinate their enemies and the supposedly the word assassinate and assassin 
comes from hashishin, which is the the fact that he was giving them all this hash, and and he was. Uh, I I remember reading that they said that he would give them women from his harem and hashish and put them in this state of ecstasy and basically tell them that this was paradise, and if they wanted to get back to paradise, they had to go do his bidding. Is this basically the the story? That, that's the story, but that's the story given to us. That's not the real story. <laughs> it's it's a legend. It, yeah, it's the legend. It's like the, uh, the old man of the mountain was the last of uh, of the chef of that time. They were destroyed by the by the Mongol by the horse uh, leaders and and Attila and all that good stuff. So yeah. Mark, that's why Marco Polo could go to China because it wasn't Muslim anymore. Christian could go through it, but that was hundreds of years after the death of the dude. Yeah. Also, the yeah, it it was a tall tale. It was uh, it was based on truth, but then it had been elaborated on and exaggerated, basically, right? Yeah, and also it came from the Crusader because one of the king of the first king of Jerusalem was killed in the middle of everybody. Of, of Jerusalem by Ashishin. Ah. So uh, that's why it was also connected to uh, killers. And yeah, they were killers, but Ashishia, it's eater of Ashish. It has nothing to do with assassin. There were no words for assassin. They, they made it up. So they weren't, they weren't eating lots of Ashish, you're saying? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Okay, Um, I'm going to pause for a quick break, but we'll be right back with more from Frenchie Cannoli on the history of hash here on Canthropology. All right, welcome back, everybody. We are here uh, with Frenchie Cannoli, uh, renowned hash expert, uh, discussing the history of hashish. And where we last left off was we had dispelled the myth of the Hassani Sabah hashishin being uh, the basis of the they were assassins, but they were not what people claim they were. Um, and you had mentioned also, Frenchie, that uh, the Hashishin were brought down by the Mongols. Now, after all this happened, uh, over the next several centuries after Hashish came into use, the use began to spread further and further across the ancient world, and that happened for a few reasons. Uh, one, as you mentioned, was Genghis Khan and the Mo- uh, the Mongols, because as they basically conquered all these different people, they brought cannabis and Hashish with them, didn't they? That's what they say. It's like it looks like the number, the, the, the number of people using it increased uh, when the when the Mongols came in uh, into play. Uh, but if you look at the history of cannabis, when we talk about the Soma Oma, five thousand years old, the people who brought that to India. And, uh, and northern Afghanistan are descendants from the Yamnaya that bring you back like uh, 5,000 years plus year, uh, where the first people, maybe not to domesticate horse, but to have will and to, uh, to be a, a powerhouse in, uh, in northern uh, Europe and northern Asia. And these people are the forefathers of the um, Sitian that came after them, that were also stoners. And, uh, oh, the Scythians, and then, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, and then just at 3,000 years ago, the remain of, uh, of flowers that we find in the Tarim Basin and stuff are also descendants of this pastoralist uh, tribe that uh, moved from northern Europe somewhere about five, 7,000 years ago. So there is evidence that those people were using cannabis for a long time. Uh, to what point, it's very difficult to say because there is a lot of uh, non-very scientific historic uh, uh, mention of their use of, uh, of cannabis, but there is a bunch of solid evidence of it at the same time. Yeah. Uh, so they definitely were uh, users. They definitely were uh, sharing the, the knowledge with uh, the the tribes they, they conquered, as is evident in, in the history of, the, of that whole part of, uh, of Asia. So, yeah, to a certain point, they, uh, they must have uh, maybe not brought it, but pushed it down further uh, south. Yeah. And then also, so the, so the Mongols may have been somewhat responsible. Also, the Sufis were a bit responsible for spreading uh, hashish and, and cannabis throughout the Muslim world because I know that once there a split occurred in, in Islam, once they came up with Sharia law, cannabis was banned with music and dancing and the, the Sufis, uh, you know, split with them and continued to believe that music and dancing and cannabis were ways to connect with God. So they they were also part of the, the spread, I would imagine. And then there was Marco Polo and the Silk Road. The Silk Road is probably the biggest reason that it spread, right? When, when the Silk Road totally opened, yeah. But the Silk Road was open. The Silk Road was closed only to Europe, to the Christian. But otherwise, there was a lot of stuff. I mean, the Silk Road is... Uh, Europe is the backyard of, uh, of uh, Asia. Huh? The, the Earth, the Central Asia, is where everything has always happened since the dawn of time. Uh, yeah. And, uh, Europe came much, much later. You know what I mean? Sure, With, uh, sure. Well, no, I'm still talking. I'm not even at Europe yet. I'm just saying, like, uh, this is how it began to spread throughout the ancient world. Um, it was, you know, hashish and cannabis were sought after commodities that were transported and sold along the, the Silk Road. And uh, for Yeah, for sure. Maybe, for sure. We have nothing about it. Yeah. We have nothing, nothing about it. That's what is very, very... Uh, interesting it's like the only reason must have been that it's so valuable it was so valuable as an instance that uh, people didn't want to share the how it's made and uh, where to make it i guess <laughs> yeah and i believe if, if i from what i've read online that uh cannabis and hashish came first came to morocco in the 14th century does that sound right no because that's, that's cannabis as a flower, not hashish. Oh, okay. Mila, Mila, they didn't make hashish when Mila was there in 64. They didn't have hashish back then, no, you're saying? No, they were smoking kif. Oh, just... They just... were smoking the, the flower chopped with the black uh, tobacco. Ah, okay. So it, it continues to spread. And so it wasn't until the, I believe the 18th century that it actually got to Europe uh, and that was I think partly at least thanks to to one of your countrymen Napoleon right yes it was because <laughs> <laughs> he, he invaded Egypt uh, and and then when his troops came back uh, they brought hash and weed with them right 
Yeah, they, they bought the habit, yeah, they were smoking. Because there is no alcohol there. And they were all drinkers. Well, if you cannot, if you have to drink tea, uh, if you can uh, smoke ash at the same time, it's okay. If you have only tea, it would, uh, they would have gone mad. So they all came back, they were really into uh, smoking ash. And uh, it, uh, it brought the culture, world culture uh, super strong in Europe. And so basically France was the spot for hash and weed in the very beginning in Europe, right? I mean, that was Paris and France is where, where it was at. I, I, to, a, to a point, I imagine, yeah. I'm, uh, and and any, uh, any other places where you had a, a lot of art and uh, cultural uh, new stuff happening, I imagine. Uh, but the most renowned, it's, it's France because of the, the club of the Ashishin. Yeah, and then I, I read also that Thomas Jefferson and uh, President James Monroe both served uh, as U.S. ambassadors to France uh, in, in the late 1700s, and they were they were smoking hash too when they were over in France. They they picked up the habit of, of smoking it, as, as, according to what I read. Have you read anything about that? Yeah, yeah uh, a little bit, yeah. I mean, it was, uh, if you think of it, the greatest writer in the French culture uh, were from that time. And they were uh, all eating ash. It's like they, it's, uh, cult- uh, the cultural level. It's like the, the best writer we have in, uh, in French literature were, uh, were part of the, of the club of the Ashishin at the time. And they were a bunch of painters. And it's like it was... That uh, young, cutting edge, uh, artistic uh, side of uh, of life, especially after the the Napoleonic uh, War, uh, the, in that time of peace, it like uh, people really like uh, try to enjoy and uh, life even more so because they have suffered so much the generation before. Yeah, and so people started smoking it more when tobacco was introduced, right? Uh, when tobacco came over from the New World, people started smoking tobacco, and I and from what I've gathered, that's when people started smoking it as well. They would mix it with the tobacco, right? It's pretty sure that it started before the the discovery of the of the New World, but there is very very little evidence of uh, of it. You mentioned the Club de Hashishins in Paris, um, and mm. I wanted to, I think that's worth, you know, touching on and talking about. So there was this great club uh, that was dedicated to the consumption of hash and other drugs, and there it was a private club, and there were a lot of very famous uh, writers and poets and artists that would, were part of this club. Tell us a little about what you know about the, uh, the Club de, de Hashishins. <coughs> No, it, it was the, the whole Ashish part was brought by a, a French scientist that was studying uh, Ashish and um, saw people who go crazy. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. How, to, uh, how it could help uh, people in time of stress and uh, uh, PTSD and stuff like that after war and, uh, and stuff like that. And uh, the guy traveled in, uh, was taking care of, uh, of people personally. And uh, he traveled in, uh, in Greece and uh, Northern Africa, spent some time of, uh, in Egypt, and, and came back with a, a recipe of Majun, 
which is kind of a, a sweet delicacy made from, uh, from bang that is also a few thousand years old, coming certainly from Persia or, uh, or India, we don't know for sure. And he brought that mix to, uh, to Europe, to Paris, and that's what they were, uh, they were eating. So it was kind of, uh, they, they were a little science behind the we're, uh, we're eating ash and getting high, you know what I mean, to a, to a certain point. The same with uh, the opium and, uh, yeah. and everything they were, uh, they were using. They, they, there was that scientific side to see uh, what's, what was behind the, the full potential of, uh, of ash. Quoi. And was that Dr. Louis Albert Rocher? Is that the one you're talking about? Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, yeah. And then around that time, I think it was 1839, uh, O'Shaughnessy's, which is a, a, a medical journal, basically, uh, wrote a comprehensive study of, of what they called Himalayan hemp, uh, which was recognized by the European School of Medicine as hashish. Um, and so this really begins the dawn of the use of medical marijuana. I mean, obviously, people had been using it medicinally already for thousands of years. But as far as the modern idea of medicine, this is when it really started uh, kicking off. Yeah, I mean, that was like the Western world recognizing uh, the cannabis plant as a medicinal plant. So, uh, yeah, it was a... Uh, uh, it was a huge step into the evolution of the, of medicine in a, in the Western world when uh, when that came in uh, into play. Yeah, it was between like 1880 and 1900 was really the peak of when it started taking off, uh, and hash was used to treat pain and migraines and uh, insomnia were, and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, uh, they were the English. They went into over uh, overkill learning about uh, ganja and ash and charas in uh, when they uh, when they conquered those colonies they were everybody was using it everybody and his brother so they were <laughs> a huge trade of it and since they profit from trade they wanted to study it if they should let it go or if they should uh, prohibit it or, and what was the value behind and every product. So the studies that were done in the 18th century on a, on a cannabis plant were, are really pretty amazing because there, uh, <coughs> there is no judgment about it. It's fact. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, it's uh, sometimes a little bit romantic, and uh, you wonder if the Indian and local didn't make fun of the of the colonizer, but uh, there is a lot of super solid data. Our oldest uh, data on uh, on cannabis come from uh, from those study. And this was when all of the both in America and and in Europe there was a lot of a lot of remedies and tonics and all these apothecary type treatments being made with cannabis, cannabis indica, they mm. called it, or, or, or yeah, Indian yeah, hemp yeah. or whatever. Um, yeah. And it was, uh, it was really a, a golden age of cannabis medicine, I guess you could say. 
And of course, uh, that all uh, changed in the 20th century with the dawn of prohibition. And we're going to get to talking about that in a second. But first, I got to take one more quick break here uh, to pause for a commercial. But we'll be right back with more uh, with Frenchie Cannoli here on Canthropology. All right, welcome back to Canthropology. Uh, this is Bobby Black here with Frenchie Cannoli, uh, hash expert and hashishin extraordinaire. Um, so before the break, we had talked about how cannabis and hashish uh, in its form as a cannabis uh, resin was used for medicine in the uh, late uh, 19th century, early 20th century. And then, of course, around that time, things started to change. Um, in 1880, Egypt, which had been a, a hub of uh, hash and cannabis, banned the cultivation, sale, and, and consumption of it. And that prohibition led to what was one of the things that started the smuggling industry. And it's also, I read, one of the things that got Lebanon into starting to create hash. Uh, when Egypt shut it down, Lebanon kind of picked up the ball and ran with it, right? I, I don't think so. I think Lebanon is... I know for a fact that uh, uh, there were a lot of stuff going on from Greece to Egypt in that time. Since my hero, that's what he was doing. <laughs> oh, yeah, when gun smuggling wasn't good enough in the Red Sea, he would go to, uh, he went to, uh, never seen ash or never done anything with ash. He went and talked to specialists to know how to fake it. He went to Greece, he bought a, a bundle of ash and he brought it back to, uh, to Egypt. And that was like the early 19, 1920, uh, 1918, something like that. Well, that's also around the same time that the League of Nations had their international mm -hmm. opium convention. Um, so they, they basically got together all these countries and decided that they were going to impose these, sign this drug control treaty. Uh, now, initially, cannabis was not included in that, um, in the original one in 1912, but it was revised in 1925. And the prohibition on cannabis and hashish was added mostly at the urging of Egypt and, and the United States. Do you know what it was about what made Egypt turn against it so strongly at that point? I, I, I don't know, but in, uh, in uh, 1890, Greece and Turkey prohibited the cultivation and use of hashish. And then in 1926, Lebanese hashish production is prohibited as well. So it, you know, it was part of what was going on in uh, in that region. I mean, by the 1920s, close to 60 countries had prohibited hashish. That's pretty, you know. That's I mean, that's all of a sudden it's a huge wave of prohibition that just sweeps the world. Yeah, no, I'm, I don't know much about that to tell you the truth. But it's uh, it's uh, some somebody wanted to uh, to control something that he didn't like other do. Basically, you know what I mean. And in in that wall, in that wall region, in that wall Islamic empire, after the 13th century, it became pretty common. It wasn't really you were not really the the scum of the world eating hashish or taking hashish, but you were still a bad boy, but like a good <laughs> serious bad boy. It wasn't really well received. It was yeah. accepted because it became more common, but it wasn't well received. If you look at all the story about people eating ashes, it makes a lot of fun out of them. Uh, the one of the, the, the two from the thousand and one night is yeah. it's pretty badass. It's like it's 
you're making fun about the, the guy who, uh, who had the, the hashish, basically. So it's never been well appreciated or at any level. It's like accepted at best only. Yeah. So that was easy for them f to flip out because it's so religious. If you pay too much attention to getting high, you don't pay attention to your religious duty. And it doesn't work together for, for most of, uh, of very religious people. And this is a very religious time in history, the late 1800 and 1900, because it's the whole uh, Islamic empire becoming, uh, entering the modern world of the 20th century. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, and then so, and in 1961, the Opium Act was replaced or superseded by the Single Convention of Narcotic Drugs, which stated that all non-medical use of drugs such as opium, uh, cannabis, hashish, and co coca leaves will be outlawed everywhere. Of course, uh, it continued to be grown and produced and sold. It just was done in the black market, you know. And mm -hmm. um, but cannabis and drugs were about to undergo a huge. Renaissance when the 1960s hit, of course, with the rise of the counterculture. So I know that uh, the beatniks and the hippies from America and Europe kind of rediscovered cannabis and, and hashish as a cultural sacrament. And starting in the mid 50s and early 60s, thousands of young, you know, long-haired pot smokers began making a pilgrimage to the old Silk Road, uh, to the old hash-producing regions, which they kind of rechristened as the Hippie Trail. <laughs> Yeah, no, that was a revolution, all right. So the hippies would basically, they'd, they'd go to Europe, and then they, from Europe they would, you know, take buses or, or hitchhike or whatever, find, you know, ways to... Yeah, I mean, to, you could take train and bus and to go to India. Yeah, and they they would go along all the stops. They'd go through Iran, yeah. they'd go Afghanistan, India, Nepal, all in search of, of hash, basically. Yeah, freedom, new culture. Uh, it was mostly freedom when you want to... Uh... You want to be out of the, out of society. You want to be, you don't want nothing to do with society anymore. And that's the best way to do that. It's to go into those remote places where you, uh, you can even forget which year you are. You know what I mean? You don't give a shit anymore. <laughs> <laughs> then it You're was... on the same planet, that's all. Yeah, <laughs> but back then it was a lot more welcoming toward Americans. It wasn't uh, the climate wasn't like it is today. I don't know if did your travels coincide with the hippie trail or was that a different time? Late hippie trail. Uh, Mila was full uh, beginning of it. I'm ten years uh, younger than her. Yeah, I know Mila was definitely uh, you know as in her book and her and her film she talks about it and I know she was a big yeah, uh, yeah, someone yeah. who traveled the hippie trail and also uh, my friend our friend friend of the show Travis Ashbrook from the Brotherhood of Eternal Love uh, I I know that he went out there uh, in the sixties and he you know made his connection with the Toki brothers in Afghanistan and began smuggling and shipping back huge amounts of hash to to California yeah. and basically yeah. turning yeah. America on to to that yeah um, definitely so, yeah it was a really cool special time when you know you could just kind of roll in with no money as an American into Afghanistan and and just hang out and it was and it, they were welcoming of it they were very welcoming uh, okay we bring money and stuff but it's like it's uh after uh, after the stress of the Western world, it feels like paradise. Yeah. 
And also, I know that around this time um, in Kathmandu, there were uh, people that were openly selling and advertising hashish right in the stores, like in the storefronts. And the most yeah. famous of these is probably the Eden Hash Center. Um, yeah, it is. It was opened in 1970 um, and uh, by a guy named Dev Data Sharma. And uh, it was a very popular place. And he, he advertised it with these great promotional calendars that had images of, of Hindu deities and, and these promo posters. Um, what do you know about the Eden Center? I came, I, I came late. I, I came in, uh, in Kathmandu. I, actually, I met my wife in, uh, in Nepal, in Pokhara. Oh, I wow. came in, uh, in Nepal in 1980. So it was totally the end of the hippie time, actually. It was the beginning where, uh, while I was there, so it was like hippie territory still, like really, uh, it, it cost us 30 rupees for a visa. Uh, I think it's, I, I, it, it was really a few dollars uh, a visa. And uh, I, uh, I needed my, my third month visa. So we went to, uh, to Kathmandu and I go to the place where uh, you get the visa with my 35 uh, rupee in my pocket. Hmm. And when I give the, that, the guy look at me and say, oh, there is a new regulation now. It's 3,500 rupee. Oh, no. Not 35 rupee. I, uh, gee, I, uh, I had 75 rupee altogether. <laughs> in, uh, <laughs> oh, no. In my bank account. Like, I say, oh, but I'll be, uh, I'll be coming back. And, uh, and it was a pretty scary time. It was when they, they really literally raided every hotel, every places, and uh, they were throwing people out of Nepal into India, basically, or in the no man's land that is the territory between India and, uh, and Nepal. Like when you don't yeah. know, uh, you, uh, you, cannot, uh, you cannot go, you're thrown away from one, but they don't let you enter any other, basically. Oh. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. So I didn't see that time. Sure, I saw a little bit of the. It was crazy. Like you could go into the shop, <laughs> and you could buy a few grams or uh, a few hundred kilo, uh, same same. Yeah, and so we actually have in our in our museum collection we have one of those calendars from the Eden Hash Center, and we have two uh, promotional posters from the Eden Hash Center as well, um, which is pretty cool. And then um, we also have uh, some other. We have another hashish calendar uh, from 1976 in the collection. I don't know if you've ever seen that one before. Did you see the the the, the images I sent you? Yeah, yeah, I did. I I didn't know that seventy six. You don't know that one, okay? Well, so uh, during the nineteen seventies, uh, after the hippie trail, or at least to be start at the uh, tail end of the hippie trail, I know that Amsterdam became kind of a new hub for the hash trade in the in the with the passage of the cannabis tolerance policy and with the birth of the coffee shop industry with all the new coffee shops, Amsterdam in the seventies, eighties, and even nineties became. A, a hash hub in Europe, right? It was, yeah. I, I even yeah, heard this. I cannot say much because I uh, I went twice to Amsterdam in those days, and it wasn't really. It was for shopping, but it was for shopping uh, in in the black market. So I didn't stay long. I didn't 
I didn't see much of it. It was all uh, pretty much like uh, illegal, illegal. You even pass the border without showing your your passport because you pass by the small road countryside, like crazy, crazy trips like you do in uh, in producing country, basically. <clears throat> to uh, to pass border or uh, from one country to the other. Not really stories that I like to uh, to share, but that's what uh, we were pushed to do to be able to uh, to smoke at uh, some quality stuff at reasonable price also. So I, I never experienced the coffee shop and uh, and all that part of uh, of Amsterdam until much much later. On, uh, on on visit, you know what I mean? It's like I uh, I know very little of the history of Amsterdam outside what Mila shared uh, with me. Yeah. All that time I was traveling in producing country. Yeah. Well, Amsterdam was my introduction to hashish, really. I mean, I mm. had never, growing up in New York and Brooklyn, we didn't really have access to that kind of stuff. We had basically crappy weed was all we had access to. And so I started working at High Times in 1994. And I had only been working at High Times for a couple of months when they asked me if I wanted to go over to Amsterdam to work at the Cannabis Cup. So uh, <laughs> I was like 21 years old, I think, at the time. And I had again just started at high times and so of course I want to go to Amsterdam and I'll never forget you know going into the shops for the first time and yeah the weed is the weed is great and everything and that was exciting but for me the hash was what really was exciting because I mean I had weed in the US but to go into a shop like the Bluebird or or one of those type of shops and have like someone show you a binder a, a Filled with different types of hash from all over the world. Here, these yeah. are the ones from Nepal. Here, are the here are the ones from Morocco. Here are the ones. It was like holy cow! You're like the phrase, the kid in a candy store. You know, like you don't even know yeah. what to start with. It's so so exciting. So you know, from that point on, every year when I would go to the Cannabis Cup, I would always stock up on different types of hash and then smuggle them home with me to and make them last throughout the year until I would go back the next year because <laughs> it was just so such a different experience and even though you know today you know i i love dabs and i love you know all different types of cannabis products but the traditional hash just always has such a uh a nostalgic and and delicious uh it brings back so many not just memories but it, it's just an older simpler time i guess you know possible but it's also the buzz it's like the buzz is different it's it's something that is Comfortable, you you feel like a well-being state uh, that you have when you smoke ash. When you smoke an extract, it's it's more on the speedy side. It doesn't last very long. The ash, it's more like slow, comfortable, warm, and uh, and long trip. Yeah, so it's like you uh, it's you can like that type of stuff. It's like personally, that's what I like too. I appreciate. A good dab of rosin. It's like a little punch of uh, of speed that doesn't last long, but it's all uh, it's all good. That's just what I needed, and I get it with the new generation. They want something like uh, to stay on their uh, on their toe, tippy-toe. Toe. I got that, but at the same time, it's like most of them have never experienced ash. Ash is another state of mind altogether so it's like it's 
experience of what is a good traditional hash, then you will be able to compare to the experience you have with uh, with extract. You may prefer one or the other, but I'm pretty sure that if you like cannabis resin and concentrate, you will definitely appreciate a good traditional hash. Huh? Yeah, for sure. And I like the analogy you used earlier, and I, I use that analogy myself sometimes, which I like to say that, you know, concentrates is like drinking whiskey or a shot or something, and cannabis, the flower, is like beer, and hash, traditional hash, is like wine. That's kind of mm -hmm. the, the way I view it, you know, in my mind, is like, <laughs> you wouldn't chug a glass of wine, you would sip it and savor it, you know, and that's kind of what you do with a traditional hash, uh, as opposed to just like, you know, doing something fast and quick and sucking it all down. And and I agree, it is there is something kind of uh, comforting and, and warm about smoking a nice uh, – and I like to just smoke it. I, you know, a lot of people like to put it on top of their bowl of weed, which is, which is great. But personally, I don't even want to adulterate the hash with the weed. I just want to smoke the hash. So I have my little pipe, and I put my hash in my little pipe, and I just sip it, you know, and it's just delicious. I do it more and more also. I, I've been mixing, I, I rather mix in a, in a joint, the ash and a, and a flower than on a, on a, on a pipe. Yeah. On a pipe, I, I, I really like it pure like that, yeah. You know, with the... We were talking, it's funny because we were talking about it with Mila a little bit earlier. How, uh, how for a, a, an European, we smoke it normally with, uh, with tobacco. What's the difference? Uh, yeah. tobacco without tobacco uh, it takes a while to appreciate but now i uh i really like smoking my uh my ash pure yeah over anything basically yeah and we keep mentioning mila uh, you know so i should i should mention that mila who is known as the hash queen and rightfully so um mila helped uh pioneer uh another type of hash which we haven't really touched on yet uh we talked about in the beginning charas and dry sift um but we haven't really talked much about ice or water or bubble hash which is um which would you would consider that part of traditional hash though right that's not that's uh, I mean, it's like it's uh, what I make using ice water uh, methodology. It's still ashish. I don't call it I call it ice water ash because I want I want people to be able to uh, to make the difference with uh, with dry sieve, but uh, it's uh, it's ash in its traditional form. You know, what I mean the the methodology you use. To collect the the trichon gland has nothing much to do with uh, with the end product ex uh, except uh, gaining in uh, in cleanliness and uh, and purity. Yeah, at the end of the day, uh, uh, a gland is a gland is a gland. Once it's dry well, it's back to normal, and once it's pressed together into a mass, it's ashish. It's good for people to. Uh, to make the difference between because dry sieving ash to a level of purity that is over 90 percent it's a it's a very big act of love <laughs> hmm. uh, to, uh, to make it happen it's uh, it, it's more to define more clearly the the, pro, the product but uh, in the eyes of a of a local afghani or libanese when i show my ash 
for them it's uh, it's hashish like traditional hashish it's the interesting part for them it's to under to uh, to realize that there is actually no real difference between what they're doing and what we're doing it's just that mila created uh, created an evolution in 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 sieving she sieving is made of two processes you agitate to break the gland from the stock and you separate at the same times over the perforation of your sieve so it's like it's it's two process that you can control to a certain limit because but because they are together in the same methodology you cannot really fine-tune fine-tune it when you add water to the to the story you rehydrate your material so already you create much less contaminant if you don't crush the uh, the plant material you're not going to create contaminant but at the same times you agitate in a machine or by hand in the containing chamber and you separate in your bag when she created the bag she created she separated the two processes that dry sieving is made of that's what i flipped out when i saw the machine <laughs> and the bag the first time it's like wow this is so fucking genius then you can maximize your agitation and your separation in your bags the cleanliness of your uh, of your hand resin it's like uh, that's the only evolution in a in a game that is million, 10 millennium 15 millennium old like oh well yeah <laughs> bravo and- mila she didn't know she was doing it it's all like yeah you know it's like you're not conscious of what you know but your consciousness speak and you uh you improve the game you get to the next level and that's what she did it's like uh, i'm i'm so 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 thankful to her for what she brought to the game because it's like the hash i'm making now it's not what i was making uh, in my uh, 20s 30s uh, in in producing country huh? yeah yeah i mean just using the ice water as the adjutant as opposed to the screen or the hands or whatever it's just uh it's certainly certainly pure and then you get this uh great effect when you when you smoke it because there's nothing to combust it just bubbles and they call it full melt because mm-hmm. when you touch the flame or hover the flame over it it just bubbles away <laughs> yeah it liquefies yeah. Yeah, literally yeah, yeah that's great um so with with the popularity of uh, obviously uh, solvent hash i shouldn't even call it hash solvent concentrates uh in america is hugely popular uh live resin um rosin all these different types of dabs mm. um are very popular um and they and they are very potent and they're very pure um but uh, you know, obviously, I feel like that because of their popularity, traditional hash seems to have been kind of forgotten here in the States. Uh, I'm sure it's probably I know it's still popular in Amsterdam. I'm sure it's still popular in other parts of Europe and, and such. Um, I know you're one of the people that's been trying to change that that's been trying to keep the traditional hash methodology and, and enjoyment of it alive here in the States. Um, do you think that traditional hash will have a renaissance here? I mean, how big of a market do you think there is for traditional hash here? Because I don't see it in dispensaries and things very much. 
there is a demand. There is not enough on the shelf, but there is a demand. Uh, it's getting more and more popular. It's, uh, it's not understood. You've you don't have the ash culture. It's, you're too new. In, uh, they were too little of it in the 70s. And then in, uh, with the Fed breaking down on hardcore, on all uh, import, you've been on the island, basically, growing your own uh, and growing fire. Flower was always big. BHO broke that and created a new concentrate uh, industry, literally, that is that became attractive to uh, to people and people who put tricon gland non-solvent saved uh, product did it in a way like Nikati and, uh, and Matraz. They did it. It's all mimicking what was done in a, in a BHO, in the extraction uh, world. Uh, even the name ice wax, solventless, it's all to show the relation that it has with the products that people are getting from the BHO extraction. You could use the same tool. You add a little bit less cannabinoid, uh, but plenty more terpen in, uh, in those days, especially. Uh, it didn't leave that much residue on the nail. Uh, you know what I mean? It was, yeah. it was a fit in the door. And slowly, slowly, it took a little bit more importance in the market, and then rosin came into play. So that is more towards the, the whole concentrate consume your uh, culture in, uh, in America. They want it uh, colorless. They want it as pure as, uh, as possible. And, uh, and rosin was a mean to give some, uh, some serious extracts that could really compete with other uh, extraction techniques. While BHO, it's still the main runner of creation. Uh, rosin can do you can do so much with rosin that it became uh, a huge market by uh, by itself. Traditional ash, it's it's gonna touch the culture like first, second, third generation of culture that come from producing country, and it comes from people experiencing it. Like slowly, slowly, there is more and more. People liking pressed, uh, pressed resin. I have studies showing that actually there is a lot of good that come from pressing your uh, your resin into a, your resin gland into a, a mass of uh, of resin that is called ashes. And uh, quality talk by itself. You know what I mean? It's like it's. Uh, I just. If you if you smoke my ash or the ash that come from my buddy in Afghanistan or some Lebanese dude that I follow and stuff like that, you will be blown away. You, it's not maybe something you're gonna smoke after all, always that you wouldn't put it on top of your list, but it's something that you would give respect to. So it's like believe the old people that have tested some high quality. Uh, traditional ash that it can be really awesome and you uh, 
you should try <laughs> so you can you can compare to the the new stuff that is done today yeah so what what is what is the advantages in your mind of of the way your methodology well it's not my methodology it's something that has been done for millennium in every producing country by everybody that smoke hashish it's like i didn't invent anything i'm just looking for the science behind what I have experienced right. in producing country. So I have seen pressed resin that become better through times, hundreds of times. You know what I mean? I, uh, when, when, you, when you are in a producing country, you will never smoke loose resin uh, tricon gland, ever. They don't do it. It's not done. They tell you it's not good. And if you ask them why they press it with the source of it, it's because it makes good, strong hashish. They, they don't have a reason for it. They have millennium of experience and passing down generation after generation the tech so that it becomes absolutely perfect. Yeah, but you're but you're trying to look into the science of it. You're saying you're trying to see why that's me. I'm, that's why I'm studying aging. I'm studying pressing. What's happen when you press? What's happen when you when you edge? Yeah, to prove that my experience is valid and uh, we should study it further. Absolutely, I, that's fascinating stuff, and I'm I'm looking forward to seeing the results of of what your studies reveal. You have some of it already huh? on my website, on uh, the research, uh, the Tricon Research Institute. There is six months of research done on uh, aging uh, a temple ball. Okay, great. And tell everyone what website they should go to? Frenchicanoli.com. Okay, and I know you said you're also working on a book about hashish. Tell us a little about that. Well, I'm, I'm working on a book that would be my, uh, my workshop. In, uh, in detail, push a little uh, further than anything I have done yet. And the other one is on Ashish and a lot about the history of cannabis, like uh, all that all part about uh, Homo erectus and uh, the dissemination of the cannabis plant in a, in a fertile crescent and stuff was part of it. And then I studied the first civilization and all, the, all this was connected through uh, a mapping where I map on a map I, I, I put uh, where I where solid evidence of Homo erectus are on the uh, Eurasian continent with the date and everything then Neanderthal Denisovan and Homo sapien and then I put all those map one on top of each other and when I put them one on top of each other I find what I called archaeological hotspot. Spot where they all were there and they share time and territory and interbred. And these places are actually the center of what would become the, uh, the first uh, civilization of, uh, of humanity. And on it, I connect also all the, all the plants that created agriculture. And when you put when you map them and you put them on it, all those map uh, all the the grain and rice and uh, all mm -hmm. the, the first uh, founder they call it founders crop 
where they were born are in the same archaeological spots that were created by our ancestors. That means that through time, people have a preference for certain plants that the nutrition that have a specific nutrition of medicinal aspect. And because they don't destroy everything, they always leave enough that there will be more when they come back next time. Every time they come back, there is more for the, for the tribe. And that was the birth of semi-sedentary life and the birth of agriculture. People were being able to harvest and make beer and bread way before, like five, seven thousand years before the actual birth of agriculture nine thousand years ago. So that was to show that humanity has defined the the birth of the founder's crop, but cannabis is part of the founder's crop. So how does cannabis can be mapped inside that? I don't know. I have the beginning of the story. So I looked for the end of the story. Yeah. I looked for the map that um, <coughs> Robert Clark is um, showing in his book of uh, cannabis, uh, where he shows that the, the mapping of the 21st century. When I put this on my, uh, on my, uh, on my map of all time, there is a few parts that connect but there is some that do, don't show much, like Iran and Iraq, places where it's difficult to have the data in the 21st uh, century because everything that Robert Clark has, it's been given to him by tourists or uh, travelers or other botanists and, uh, and plant uh, botanists amateurs. So it's not really... It's, there is regions that were not really hospitable to, to anyone when you're a Westerner for a long time. Yeah. So you have all. But there is also a place in the Altai mountain where you have uh, wide, uh, narrow leaf and, uh, and wide leaf uh, type of, uh, of cannabis. And ruderalis in the same place, wild, where there is... It's not, and it's not connected to anything I have on, uh, on all my first civilization. And for me, it was so, why do you have something that is so unique in that place in the middle of nowhere in Altai mountain when there is no civilization there? Yeah. And that's where it connects me back to the pastoralist culture of the Yamnaya and the Sitian and uh, and uh, all the tribe of Genghis Khan and the tribes that were around the, the Tarim Basin, that all the same culture that created uh, a hot spot of cannabis that is unique on a, on a planet deep up in a, in a southern Siberia, southern uh, Altai mountain. It's, it's pretty badass. So I, I was looking for the cradle of Ashish, but I, uh, I learned a lot about the cradle of, uh, of cannabis and, uh, and how it moves through, uh, through time during the research. It was super cool. I, uh, I spent a good time looking around for all this data and stuff. 
Uh, it's extremely fascinating stuff, and I'm looking forward to reading your book whenever it comes out. Uh, and in the meantime, uh, I would just like to say thank you so much for keeping these traditions alive and teaching people and doing these classes and seminars to show people the joys and the wonders of traditional hashish, how it's made and, and, and why it's special and why it should be continued. And we need to keep that tradition alive and that, that appreciation alive. So thank you for all your work that you've done, Frenchie. And thanks for taking time to, to talk with us today and, and delve into the history of hashish here. Yeah, I mean, we've been deep. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> thank you for what you do, man. It's like, uh, yeah, it's nice to talk, but uh, somebody need to, uh, to bring the voice to uh, to the people to you've been doing for a long time. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. And uh, same to you, my friend. And uh, I look forward to hopefully seeing you again soon when cannabis events are allowed to begin happening again. <laughs> oh, oh, yes, with a big hookah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I'm looking forward to that, to hitting some of your delicious hash on that, on that lovely hookah once again. Much love, man. All right. You take care, my friend. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Wow. That's just some really, really fascinating stuff. You know, the more you learn about the history of cannabis, the more you realize how central it was in so many ways to the development of civilization and culture. Uh, just like I said, really fascinating stuff. And that's going to wrap it up for yet another episode of Canthropology. For more information about the World of Cannabis Museum Project or to read our Canthropology blog, please visit our website at worldofcannabis.museum. If you'd like to contact us, you can hit us up on social media or shoot us an email at canthropology at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this show, we invite you to go ahead and subscribe, leave us a review, share it with your friends, and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. A quick shout out to our awesome media partners, uh, Cannabis Radio, Hayes Radio, and Leaf Magazine. Thanks again for listening, everyone. I hope you'll join us again next time here on Canthropology. Until then, this is Bobby Black, and I am history. <laughs>